Hello and welcome to the Decode Podcast. I'm Matt Landers, joined by my co-host, Will Johnston. Hello. We're part of the DevRel team at WP Engine. And on this podcast, we talk about everything related to headless WordPress, which means we talk a lot of front-end stuff. Uh, so that's what this one's about, too. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about API-first development, and we're going to start out with a little history of how we ended up at this juncture. You know, it's, it's interesting for me, Will, that I feel like I've always done API-first development. I know that not a, that that's not common, that there are a lot of platforms over the years that kind of bundle everything together, and you don't necessarily need to create an API out of that. Uh, but yeah. that's just kind of how I've always built apps. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I think since probably since the early 2000s, uh, it started to become possible to do API first development. It may have been called something different at the time, but uh, there are tools that have been able to be used to create an API of sorts. Uh, in the 90s, it wasn't necessarily possible. I, I, I guess. You, possible is one thing but when people were mostly using mainframes and on-prem and and doing that type of development apis were not really a a thought because the front end was a completely different concept altogether uh but yeah certainly in the past 15 years uh most people i'd say whether they thought they were doing api first or not were probably creating right. an api sorts. yeah like if i think all the way back to the beginning of my career I would be doing like VB or C or C sharp. And we, and back in those days I would use DCOM, which was like a distributed RPC system uh, that Microsoft had, which that's still like API first, right? You build your business logic in this thing that you can call over the network. It wasn't pretty, uh, but it worked. Yeah. Less than pretty. I mean, rest rest was kind of a godsend there, but uh, <laughs> yeah. well, even before that, possible. we had wisdom. Yeah, there was wisdom. There was soap. <laughs> so that's really like I guess that was kind of the start. Is like how do we do this RPC stuff in a more standard way? So a bunch of people got together and they came up with this terrible idea called XML RPC, which was like <laughs> pretty much the heaviest that you could make an RPC call. <laughs> Yeah, it's essentially HTML based RPC. Uh, yeah, let's XML. Uh, it was a good thought, and <laughs> certainly it worked for a short period of time. But it's clear that JSON is a much better uh, protocol to use to to communicate or whatever you want schema. Yeah, and just using HTTP as is, and like yes, inferring things from that like Git, post, update. That was like, can change everything because in the WSDL landscape, like you would build this huge like service description and then you had different tools like Java and .NET. They had tools that could ingest this thing and then build essentially a uh, client library for you that could make those RPC calls. Yep. And that was pretty heavy way to do it. Like you needed to have this client library that knew how to consume the WSDL. And then we like transitioned to REST. And I feel like that just was this moment of explosion of APIs everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so stepping back for a moment, I feel like cloud computing, which came up in the, it's kind of started in the late 90s and then really 
push forward into the uh, early to mid 2000s. And of course, a lot of companies didn't adopt it until the past five years or so, but (laughs) it's been around. Uh, Cloud computing really started enabling these API-based services to be created and companies, even whole companies like Salesforce to spin up that offer products that are you subscribe to, right? It's not in your data center anymore. It's not, there's no uh, no concept of on-prem. It's we're using some other service, some other tool, and they're communicating through an API. Right. Yeah, I think that that's the, uh, that's been the transition point of like, it used to be you bought software, you installed it on your servers, and then it changed yeah. to, oh, wait, I don't even have to maintain this anymore. I don't have to apply updates. And that's when the cloud really like took off. And then yeah, they decided and- like, now we want you to be able to integrate. So when you would buy the software and install it on your data center, you could modify it and do things to it so that you could integrate it with your other systems. Uh, and then REST really brought about that really simple way to open up these integration points. Yeah, I think that that those products like Salesforce kind of drove uh, the technology to get up to speed to make it easier to connect with these systems and uh, and actually write your own code to configure them and things. And and so that that drove REST, right, which was the first, I mean, that was like the crowning moment of all right now apis are actually easy to use you know easy but (laughs) you can create them and consume them without having to create some bloated uh framework or or something like that yeah it's interesting now to see you know if you look forward a little bit and even like currently you see a lot of people moving really highly scalable applications away from REST because it is still pretty bulky uh, and JSON is still pretty bulky. So you see them using like gRPC, uh, which is essentially DCOM, which is hilarious uh, to think about. <laughs> like we've gone full circle but now. But it's fast. It's <laughs> not <laughs> a pain in the ass to like set up. <laughs> but yeah. It still goes back to where like you take the protobuf and you turn that into a client library. So it's interesting to go back yeah. to those days. I think that in order for it to really take off like REST has, they're, they're going to have to come up with some discovery mechanism for that. Like sure. how we have Swagger and OpenAPI and stuff like that for REST. I would expect to see some type of move towards something like that for gRPC. And then you and with HTTP2, it makes gRPC possible like for anything at that point. Mm-hmm. to go over the internet, getting in and out of uh, firewalls. Cool. So that is, uh, that's kind of how we ended up with all these products like Salesforce, Slack, you know, the different ones that you've been mentioning. Uh, but then when we think about headless WordPress, we can really just think about WordPress now as another SaaS product that we're integrating yeah. with. Yeah. I mean, when, when we're, WordPress came out with its REST API and now you have WP GraphQL and, and and that sort of thing. It turns WordPress into a, a hosted API service. Whether you're self-hosting WordPress or you're using something like WP Engine, it, WordPress now becomes uh, just a an API, right? Um, you're you yeah. kind of 
have a flexible API, you can create whatever you need. So if you're using advanced custom fields or custom post types, uh, you can create any sort of data schema that you want and create your own API on the front end. Yeah, I think of it like you're building your API with WordPress. Like it, yeah. it becomes, it's like a tool that you can use to build that external interface to your data. And then it also gives you a nice place for your uh, content producers or whoever's got to enter that data to enter it into a portal. So it, it it's nicer than saying like, and I know a lot of people want to like roll their own back in, but let me tell you, that's like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. WordPress kind of becomes a backend for you or a database. If you, you know, have extra stuff outside of WordPress, you can use WordPress database. Uh, and it also enables easy pluggability into these other SaaS products that are now popular, whether you're using Stripe or if you're using Slack or Discord and you want to have some sort of event um, notifications and things like that. Uh, it just makes it a lot easier because now you're in a on the front end, you're in this world of, okay, we're connecting to WordPress as an API. We can connect to all these other APIs that are in existence that we're using, you know, elsewhere in our business. Right. Yeah. Your applications become like a mashup of APIs essentially. Right. So we're just, you, you find the best of breed product for whatever it is that you're trying to do. And you work that into your, your front end app so that your users get the best experience. Your publishers get the best experience. Like that's really what you're trying to do is just pull in the best of everything that you need, whether it's e-com, you pull those all into one app uh, and customize it the way that you want it to work. It can make your site a little bit more modular too. So if you if you're using one product and a new thing comes out or something different comes out that suits your needs better, uh, now you can just replace that one little thing through you know through that API, and you don't have to worry about going into your massive monolith system and reconfiguring things or you know having to shut things off and turn things on at the same moment. It's just a little bit easier to transition between these different SaaS services. Right. I also, uh, whenever you go API first, it really simplifies in a lot of ways your testing. If you, if you have a monolith application where your UI and your data is all being manipulated in the same place, it's really hard to test that. And yeah, you can you can kind of test these APIs in a in a silo. And if you're using SaaS products and not building your own API for every little thing you need to do, then you know, like if I'm going to plug in Stripe's API into my application, I don't need to go and test all these Stripe endpoints. I just need to test my side of things, right? So if I'm if I'm hooking, uh, getting web hooks from Stripe for these different events and and things. I can just say, okay, I'm handling these six or seven different uh, events from Stripe and I can write tests for that, but I don't need to go and write a test to make sure that Stripe is functioning, per, uh, you know, the right way. Right. Yeah. We kind of uh, assume that they have their own tests, which yeah. for Stripe, that's probably true for others. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it depends on how many people are using some, I'd say once yeah. you reach a critical mass of users as a SaaS product, you better be testing. Right. Uh, but certainly it's a quick way to uh, lose users. <laughs> yeah. New, I'm sure new, new products spin up and probably have a lack of tests for a while. 
especially if there's, you know, one or two developers on this thing. Yeah. I feel like you're uh, speaking from experience. <laughs> I can neither confirm or deny <laughs> having ever written products with no tests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that now what you're seeing too, is that a lot of these really mature SaaS products do release their own SDKs as well. So it becomes even simpler. So you don't need to know like the endpoints or how to make the GraphQL queries or whatever you're doing. Like you literally just NPM install Stripe and then Stripe has a TypeScript file and you just IntelliSense your way through. <laughs> That's like my way to code anyways. Dot, oh, yeah, what I, I mean, All right. it's, it's kind of a way to evaluate uh, whether or not I want to use a SaaS application is how, uh, what is the developer experience like? So I think table stakes, writing, if you're going to write your own SaaS product, uh, it's table stakes to have some sort of SDK in at least some of the popular languages, right? So JavaScript, uh, probably Python, maybe Ruby, and then Go or something like that. That's table stakes. I feel like if you just have an API that you have to make HTTP requests to, it becomes a lot trickier uh, to write client-side applications. When I go and I evaluate whether I'm going to use a SaaS product, that's like point A, do they have an SDK in the language that I need to use? Great. If they do, sometimes some SaaS products take it even further and say, you know, I'm writing a React application, they will even have a React component that I can put in my app and I then I don't even have to think about it. It just works. So right. uh, like Stripe, right? I don't I don't know for certain if Stripe has this, but they, they have other things, right? But if you're Stripe and you have a checkout experience, uh, you know, I need to put in a credit card. If there's a React component that I can use and I can just slap that anywhere on my application, all of a sudden I have like this credit card component that's hooking up to Stripe's API and doing all the security and everything for me. That is like, okay, that's the next level of this is a great SaaS product, right? Right. Yeah. Just being able to drop in that UI from Stripe JS is pretty cool. You just drop it in. Yeah. It's got your credit card input box and everything. It fits in whatever container you give it. Boom, done, move on. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, some things can get really complicated, mm-hmm. especially something like Stripe, it can get really complicated to implement those things. I mean, I, I remember uh, in the early days of Stripe, they didn't have these things. They might've had a client, client side library, but there were a lot of security. There's obviously a lot of security concerns around taking credit cards and, and doing those uh, transactions. And I remember initially Stripe could, would error out and not let you charge a credit card and it, it was seemingly random, right? It would ask for more information or things like that. And so you would, it's like you'd start with the credit card. Oh, now Stripe is asking for the zip code. Oh, now they're asking for somebody's address. Oh, now they're asking for the CVV. Like those are things that if you create your own component to do those things for your SaaS product, you can handle all those rules for the developer, for the end user, and they don't have to go and read some huge document about how to implement your API. Right. Yeah, no, that's so true. I, I can't tell you how much wasted time I've had building a credit card entry form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big one, but there are, there are plenty of examples yeah. of 
mm-hmm. this in action. Sort of the uh, the business logic that's inherent to your API that you need some sort of level of business logic done on the front end to make things work, like some coordinated set of API calls. Writing a front end component, even if it's vanilla JS in an SDK or something, uh, or your backend SDK that handles all this logic makes your product that much more valuable to end users. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's dive in a little bit into like building a this WordPress site. So how do we turn WordPress into this SaaS API product? Like, I think that's, that's kind of like the holy grail of what you're trying to do is turn WordPress into a really robust API that then you can use as your, basically your content SaaS engine, right? Yeah. So I, I think the, the short answer is you don't need to do anything. WordPress is, has a rest API. You can plug into it and go from there. However, there are plugins that make certain things easier, right? Out of the box, WordPress has a concept, you know, it has pages, posts, taxonomies. You very quickly, if you're trying to turn WordPress into its own API, wants to have more configurability of your data schema, right? You don't want to just rely on posts that have some large content chunk, right? You need to have certain fields. I think there are a couple, there are two plugins that I personally use anytime I'm going to write a headless WordPress site that's advanced custom fields and custom post types. Those enable sort of more granular level of uh, schema that, you know, they're all built on top of the same database and it's all stored right. in there. But, uh, but you just, you can say, okay, if I want to have a list of videos, uh, my video needs a title, it needs a URL, it might need an image, uh, it might need a couple other things, and I can create those fields. That's a good example. If you go to developers.wpengine.com, that's exactly what we do, right? We have a videos custom post type, we have custom fields on there, and that's how we list out those videos on our homepage and um, on the listing page as well. And then that just turns into an API that we can call from the front end and we get structured data out. Whereas whenever we're talking to WordPress and we want to get a post out, the data is not that structured. It's like, sure, I get a title, I get an author, those kind of things are structured. But then the content is just this big blob of HTML. And that's not necessarily what you want in all situations. For a blog post, makes sense. It's fine. But um, for other types of data, like those videos, we want to be able to pull that in on the front end and have this structured data and then decide on the front end how we want that to render rather than the CMS telling us how it's going to render. Yes. Yeah. And I can imagine a day where, you know, Gutenberg with uh, the different blocks and things can even make uh, posts slightly more configurable. And there may be a day in the future where, you can request individual blocks and, you know, render them however you want on the front end. You can kind of do it now, but it takes a lot of futzing around with. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's dive into that a little bit. Cause I think that's kind of important. We hear a lot of people asking for that. So what, uh, what you can do. So there's an extension for Gutenberg for WP GraphQL. 
and it allows you to pull back a post and it also put, lets you pull back like the blocks that are used in that post. Right. And then you can use that to lay it out however you want. Now each block itself is going to contain raw HTML. That's kind of like this barrier that we're still at with blocks, which we're playing around at WP Engine on how we can make that experience better, where maybe we could get React components out of those blocks rather than just raw HTML. Uh, mm-hmm. So stay tuned for that. But I think that that's kind of like the holy grail where we got to get to, right? Yeah, and I think anytime you have rendered HTML that you you know have to just display on your screen, you, it introduces some complexity on the front end where if you have to poke into specific elements, like we've done this on the developer site and I've done it on other sites whenever I have to ingest something that's just HTML. Uh, You end up having to render something to the screen, wait until it's on the screen, then you do some DOM manipulation. It feels like you're back in the 90s doing your like early 2000s doing jQuery. And it's not the best solution, but it's workable. And I think we're slowly getting to the point where people are offering this, you know, content management systems that's a little bit more granular. Now, WordPress does a great job of making the publisher experience, you know, that from a content creator perspective, that's a a much easier thing. And so they, WordPress needs to maintain that. And that's where Gutenberg is kind of coming in and it's slowly getting there. But if you just go, you know, full bore and go into these like granular level data schemas with each individual field for everything you need, it becomes kind of cumbersome for the content creator, the publisher. Uh, So you, there's a balance there. And I think that eventually we'll have, you know, a, a very good experience for both the developer and the publisher. Yeah. Right now I feel like you're stuck in this position where it's like, I'm going to give the publisher all this freedom to design like a post or a page, or I'm just going to give them a form that they fill out. Like there, there's not a great in-between solution right now, which I think is what we need. So you could create a custom post type that was like structured data and that's how you did posts. Um, But it would limit the content publisher to only be able to publish posts in a certain way like images would end up in one spot or something like that. Right. Or it it would be, it'd be an awkward editing experience. Yeah. Now you brought up WP GraphQL and we've mentioned this. uh, Actually, we had a whole podcast on it that you can check out if you haven't already listened to it, but uh, WP GraphQL is separate from WordPress. It's another plugin for WordPress that, works alongside the REST API, but it makes it a little bit more natural for a little bit better developer experience to interact with WordPress. Uh, WordPress has a REST API, but certain actions and queries that you need to make using the REST API are not that friendly for a developer. Uh, And WP GraphQL is making strides to make that a lot easier. And also, kind of speed up the API in general. Right. Yeah. And an example of that would be, let's say you want to have a page that has a post on it with comments and the author. If you were going to do that with the REST API, that would be several different what REST calls you'd have to make. So you're making these network requests, a lot of them. 
And with GraphQL, we can make one request and get all that data back at once, which is really cool. Yeah, and if you think about that from a scalability standpoint, if you're making multiple network requests, you have to get, you get network lag on each request. If you make one request to WP GraphQL, it can optimize on its end. It doesn't have to make network requests to WordPress. It's running on WordPress. Right. Uh, so then it's only one network request. It can also optimize the query based on what you pass in, whereas uh, the WordPress REST API doesn't know, you know, I'm only asking for a post. I'm not asking for the author or something, right? So uh, it doesn't know to go and get the post and the author. Um, right. There are certain things you can do, but in general, WP GraphQL is going to be much more friendly for you. A lot of people might be thinking, wow, this really changes and adds complexity to how I build my WordPress sites today. Like, what are some reasons you think that you might want to go and use WordPress in this way? I know we talked about a little, which is like, if you need to integrate a bunch of SaaS products, it's going to be a lot easier to do it on the front end with a JavaScript library rather than on uh, in WordPress with plugins. Yeah. So it, I'll start by saying, I don't think headless WordPress is for everyone yet. There might be a point in the future where yeah, there's so much built around headless WordPress that it makes sense for basically anyone to do it. But if say I was uh, opening a restaurant and I needed a website for my restaurant to, you know, just display my menu and maybe take orders through some DoorDash or something. Uh, I wouldn't immediately consider and and consider for a moment that I'm not a developer, so I don't have any experience with this. I would not jump into creating a headless WordPress website because that requires a developer. I've just got this restaurant. I don't even know if this is going to be a popular restaurant. I'm just hoping. Uh, and I have a small local website. Uh, so the scalability is not as much a concern for me. Right. Traditional WordPress is perfectly fine in that scenario. If you have a website, so one of the biggest things that headless WordPress enables is better scalability for your site. So if you have, if you're a larger business and you know you're getting, you know, so many users per month and you're having trouble scaling your WordPress site, now things like WP Engine products like that they help you along the way. But when you separate your front end, where your front end is hosted from where your WordPress CMS is hosted, you gain a whole nother level of scalability, particularly horizontal scalability if you have users all over the world, right? Right. Yeah, that's one of the great benefits is now you can put that UI as close to the user as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think not only that, if you can, you can statically generate your front end site, right? So you can, you can host the UI using a CDN or something and have it be localized to where people are. And you can also statically generate your pages so that you don't have to do any front end rendering or, or any call network requests, or at least the minimum number of network requests. Right. And then have that front end server that can do anything that you need to do dynamically. And call back yeah. to the WordPress API. And you can then cache things from the API that are just reading data and then invalidate the cache whenever there's a post. Like there's so many options that you open whenever you go headless to scale. I just mm -hmm. can't imagine a scenario where 
you you couldn't scale it out to meet the needs of like a content publisher or something like that. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and in, traditionally, in I don't case, think that people have really looked at WordPress in some of those really large enterprise scenarios, right? Because yeah, exactly. you couldn't scale it out, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you couldn't integrate. So, you know, a lot of large companies use ERP systems and it's difficult to integrate something like WordPress with uh, its own sort of content and data schema into your larger ERP or CRM system. But kind of going with the theme of this podcast where everything's an API, once you go headless, WordPress is just one piece of your site, right? And now you can integrate it on the back end with your ERP or CRM or whatever. So it, it actually brings more flexibility if you're a large organization and you want to use WordPress uh, using the API and plugging it into your, you know, your back office systems is a lot easier. Yeah. I think the reason a lot of people maybe that, you know, haven't looked at WordPress in this scenario may say, well, why would I use WordPress versus something else, um, that's out there like another product? And I think the answer is that WordPress runs a lot of the internet and a lot of the marketers and content producers already know WordPress. It's a familiar interface to them. So you can enable this SaaS product, you know, this open source SaaS product that you can have access to and you can modify and make it what you need it to be. And then your the users on the portal side on the back end, they get the same experience that they are used to having. So I'll just use like an example like GitHub, right? GitHub enables uh, rendering markdown files and things like that. And as a developer, I'm often thinking like, oh, you know, I'll just have somebody edit markdown files. But if I put <laughs> on my publisher content creator hat, there's no way I'm going to go out to GitHub and edit markdown files. And even if you provide a nice editor on top of that, it, like it, WordPress just creates a much better experience for you to edit these posts. So uh, if you if you're thinking like, yes, there are this whole, there's a whole suite of CMSs. I mean, you know, tons of them coming out all the time. At the end of the day, most of them are similar to if you, if you use advanced custom fields or custom post types within WordPress, you'll get a similar experience. Uh, so you need to minimize the, the use of those things where if you, WordPress is very good for publishing content, blog posts, uh, pages on your site things like that. So you can bring the best of what WordPress has to offer into your headless world and integrate with other APIs that are more convenient for other things that you use. Yeah. You bring up a point about the Markdown editor. I've definitely done that to publishers before and it hasn't gone as well as I would have expected because I like editing Markdown. (laughs) A lot of times it starts with, you know, they're a little apprehensive but uh, they'll go with the flow. And then it there's always a breaking point, right? They're editing something, some post, and something's not going the way they think it should, and it worked this way in WordPress, and now it's like, hey, this isn't going to work for me. And once you reach that point, it's almost too late if you haven't gone with something like WordPress, which they are already familiar with. Right, and then another point I just remembered that I wanted to bring up was that when you, if you do that, and I've seen there are CMSs where you literally just go into GitHub and edit a markdown file. 
but you miss out on the entire authoring workflow that you get from a CMS like WordPress. Like, I think that's the other thing that you get. Yes, you can go find tools and different ways to expose publishers to editing content, but and, and a lot of times there's an editorial process that has to happen where somebody writes a post, somebody edits it, somebody has the ability to actually push that thing live. Like those are important scenarios that you got to think about too, whenever you're dealing with a media site. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right. So WordPress gives us that SaaS tool. It's scalable. Another really big point is that whenever you reduce the burden of WordPress from not having to do the rendering, you reduce the surface area for attacks too, uh, for, from a security standpoint. So now WordPress isn't doing as much. It's just serving the API. You can really segment off that backend so that an attacker doesn't have access to it. You're not using as many plugins that might expose you. Because a lot of your attacks come from plugins that do rendering. Uh, they just don't do it correctly. Uh, and you you re, you remove that entire aspect of security vulnerabilities from WordPress, which is pretty important in an enterprise scenario. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that currently with traditional WordPress, there are some things that particularly that agencies do to mitigate this. They don't. They might have their own you know theme or plugin that they uh, use to enforce only certain people can update or modify plugins and things like that. But once you go to headless, it's that's no longer as big a consideration because now your whole front end is hosted on a separate server. Uh, if somebody wants to poke into your front end, it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to gain access to your WordPress backend through some other completely separate site altogether. Right. And I've talked to hundreds of enterprise agencies going down this journey of headless WordPress. And a lot of them have told me, like, if they do an enterprise site, they, they don't even allow plugins. They'll, they'll write their own or something because they don't want that site to be potentially vulnerable because they use some third party plugin. You know, they'll have some that they do trust. You know, you're going to use Yoast. You're going to use WP GraphQL. You're, there are going to be some that you use because you trust them because they're maintained by big companies. But a lot of these other plugins aren't necessarily maintained by companies that, you know, have a great process from a development standpoint. It's just an individual maintaining a plugin. And yeah, it's great. And it's great for the broader community, but from an enterprise scenario, not necessarily something that you want to uh, put a lot of trust in if you're a bank, for instance, or something like that. Yeah. And the other thing we haven't brought up with uh, headless WordPress, but uh, is kind of a given is the developer experience and the tooling around writing headless sites uh, is just so good yeah. that you can you write your front end in whatever framework or language or whatever you want to use, uh, and you get the benefits of all of the tooling that come with all of these different popular frameworks that are used by millions of people, and that's something that is kind of almost taken for granted when you're just writing a normal headless site and you know not thinking about WordPress. But if you're coming from the world of developing in a traditional WordPress site, you're limited in some of these, some of the tooling that you get uh, and the developer experience in general. And so once you go headless, I mean, it only takes like building one site using headless WordPress to, to let it sink in. And mm -hmm. I'd say that in general, 
you know, I'm, I'm biased because I am a developer, but in general, when you're building these marketing sites and things, the developer experience is not, it's probably not the most important thing. Right. right. But uh, if you are a developer, which I'd assume most people listening to this are, the developer experience is great. <laughs> yeah, much better for sure. Um, yeah, just getting like IntelliSense on everything if you use TypeScript, which you should use TypeScript. We need to do an entire episode on TypeScript because that's like, <laughs> that's my jam. Like you got you to gotta use it. Uh, but if you do that, a lot of times you don't even need documentation on some of the stuff that you're using because it's all right there in the yeah. typing which I yep. love. And then there's also like self-documenting code as you write it that you get out of that as well. Um, I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but I mean, that's, that's a good interface with good types is a great documentation to me. Well, and not only that, it's just like a natural thing that you can do when you're spinning up these headless sites. I mean, if you're using Next.js or uh, Nuxt or some of these, some of these backends and it, you want to use TypeScript, most of them come with starter projects in TypeScript. So it's already ready to go out the gate. And a lot of these libraries, I mean, we talk about table stakes for uh, a SaaS product being create an SDK and then take it one step further to create a React component. Table stakes for some of these libraries are uh, TypeScript typings, right? So if you're a SaaS product and you're creating a JavaScript SDK, you better have TypeScript typings for that SDK because enough people are are starting to use it or are already using it that that's kind of a, a difficult consideration if um, you know if I'm going to use a product that has a JavaScript SDK and no typings and no com even community typings that it's going to be tough right uh, I've written back in the early days of TypeScript I've written some typings and but I always like when it's native to whoever is publishing the library. So much simpler. As then you don't have to keep the two in sync. Um, yep. And I think most people these days, if you're writing a real, a framework that's used by a lot of people, it's probably in TypeScript. And yes. also I, I think that 2021 is gonna be the year where TypeScript surpasses JavaScript on GitHub for how many projects are being written. I think I saw that somewhere. I could have just made that up. So don't necessarily believe me, but yeah, remind me one year. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that TypeScript is like just on this meteoric path, which is awesome because we've been using it since 2013 when it was in alpha mm -hmm. and seen it progress to be this like really robust typed language that we can use with JavaScript. And now there's like meta programming and TypeScript. We need to do a whole episode on this. We got to. <laughs> it's like, I could just go down like a TypeScript rabbit hole all day long. <laughs> I know you could too. Yes. You can definitely out type me, Will. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> you write some crazy types. I like it. Great to use. Impossible to read. <laughs> all right. What's some other benefits that you can think of with Headless WordPress? I know that... The DevX experience for me is definitely like the one that just gets me. Like I love API first development. I think that it makes me think in a way that I hope other WordPress developers moving into this world start to kind of think in this way too, where whenever I'm starting a project, I think about the API first and that like not to like meta into the fact that this is an API first podcast, but like I literally do. So I wrote the first proof of concept for Atlas, which is our node hosting platform at WP Engine. 
And you would think writing a hosting platform, like thinking of the API first would not necessarily be your intuitive thing to do, but that's what I did. Like I started defining what those endpoints would look like. What would a CLI need to host a site? And then I started stubbing those out and then filling in the back end. It's a really great way to kind of create this outline of how you should create your application. Yeah, yeah. and I think it lends itself to a line of thinking that is developer first. So API first is kind of synonymous with developer first. If you are thinking about a product uh, like Atlas or anything that may not even, you know, have a public API, uh, or at least not immediately. Right. You still want to think about it in there are going to be developers that are trying to build on top of this. How should they be using this product? And that it, you know, they will use it through an API. So you start thinking about okay, what is the easiest way for them to interact with my application? What kind of endpoints do I need? What options do I need? Um, you know, what data can they change? Uh, what web hooks do I need? Things like that. Going back to another benefit of headless WordPress, and we've, we've kind of touched on this, but with traditional WordPress, you spin up a site and that's your one site, right? And with headless WordPress, now it becomes an API. You can have a site, a mobile app, uh, you know, multiple other sites, like maybe you have a marketing site. And then you have like a private backend site that is actually pulling in data from your marketing site. These are all scenarios that are very easy with a headless WordPress site, with a traditional WordPress site, not so much. And that's where the custom content types really come in. Like if you're thinking about building a website, then getting HTML out of the CMS is okay, right? It's maybe not be the best, but it's workable. But if you're building a mobile app and you want to have a really great native experience, getting HTML into your iOS or Android app is not what you, that's not where you want to be. (laughs) Yeah. You don't want to have everything. It's one thing to have your entire app in a web view inside of an iOS app or an Android app, but mixing native and web view code within there is not a great experience. Right. Yeah. And and we've had a lot of customers talk to us about that too, about, Hey, we, we can't just get HTML out of this. We got to have a, like our business runs on this app. It's not mm-hmm. secondary or like tertiary to the website. It is our business and they can't, they can't have a web view type experience because they need to create the best possible user experience for their users. And they can't do that when they get raw HTML out. So I, I think that using the the different plugins and different capabilities of WordPress to get that structured data out is really critical in those scenarios for sure. All right. I think we hit on a lot of what we wanted to, to talk about API first development with headless WordPress. Let's go ahead and like give everybody the tools and capabilities to go do this on their own. I think we'll do that for our shout out section where we tell you where to go, what to go check out in order to implement some of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, The first place that you should go is developers.wpengine.com. That is the site that Matt, Will, and Nate maintain to create all of this great content. That's where you'll find the podcast. That's where you'll find different blogs and videos. And there's a specific blog post that you should check out, which is how to set up WordPress as a headless CMS. And that tells you all of the different plugins that you're going to need 
to install, to create those custom content types, to get GraphQL on the back end, and really turn WordPress into that great SaaS API product that you want. Yeah, and there are a couple other posts based on what you're using on the front end. So if you're using, uh, if you want to use React, we have a post on Next.js. If you want to use Vue, we have a post on Nuxt. Uh, we have a post that's overviewing how to do custom content types and all these things. And we're constantly coming out with uh, more content for you. And if you have a suggestion, we also have a Slack workspace that you can join. Matt, you can fill them in. Yeah, we'll put, a, we'll put an invite in the show notes, uh, but it's headlesswordpress.slack.com. Uh, we'll send out the invite though, because you won't be able to get to it from that. Uh, but definitely check that out um, and join that community. Let us know what you want to hear about. We've already heard that people want to know how to do forms and head this WordPress. I'll have you know, I coded last Friday with the Jason Ball to do that with uh, custom post types and WP GraphQL, which is really cool. We're going to do another one on um, gravity forms and how to use that. Uh, and then we're going to do some stuff on e-commerce, integrating e-commerce platforms and has WordPress. So there's a lot of live coding stuff that we're going to do as well. We're targeting those for Friday afternoons, central time. Uh, so check that out. Um, just follow us on Twitter, WPE Decode, and you'll know when we're going to be uh, launching those out. Also follow uh, me and Will on Twitter as well, Matt underscore Landers and W John Stowe for uh, our Twitter handles. Uh, shouting out ourselves, you know, not, you know, a shameless plug, I guess. Always be plugging. <laughs> Always be plugging. Subscribe to this podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed it, we're going to be producing more of these. Um, and we're really looking forward to your feedback and hopefully you're enjoying this podcast. If you have a topic that you'd like us to do, definitely jump into that Slack. Let us know. DM us on Twitter. And we'd love to get to that for you uh, and be on the lookout for more content. So until next time, happy coding.